Dear Lord, thank you for allowing us to meet here on this wonderful Sabbath morning. Uh, please be with the technology so that this word gets out and that people can learn and, uh, and that the Satan will not have his way with our technology. Please be with us uh, today as we uh, open your word and we delve into the idea of righteousness by faith. In thy name, amen. Okay, very good. Thank you for uh, inviting me here. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to get started with our presentation and the sermon this morning. And that is uh, regarding the sanctuary, but maybe not in the same way as you might have a thought. Um, it says in Psalm 77, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. And then it says in verse 12, I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. And in reference to that, he says, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? So over the last five or six years, what I've been doing is looking at the Bible and the sanctuary and how it relates. You know, there's uh, a quote from uh, Ellen G. White in letter 208 from 1906. And she says that the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. She wrote that in 1906. And she started off the 24th chapter of the great controversy with this. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. Okay, so it did that. She also says that it opened to view a complete system of truth. Now, that is, that, that, those words there are quite meaningful to me. So she says, that, again, it opened to view a complete system of truth, um, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. So notice that the, the sanctuary is not only the key to understanding what happened in 1844. It's not only a complete system of truth. It's also a way of revealing present duty as it is brought to light currently. And that's exactly what I aim on doing today. Today's sermon is going to be, uh, you know, I'm not trying to blow my horn here, but it's, I think it's a very remarkable uh, understanding of what is about to happen. We're, we've been talking about coronavirus. You probably are fatigued about coronavirus. And the, the big question that myself and everybody else has on their mind is, how does the coronavirus work into end time prophecies? What is about to happen on planet earth? And what we need to do as, as Seventh-day Adventists, as, as Bible-believing Christians, is not to be swayed by every wind of doctrine that comes and goes, but in fact, go to our core, go to the Bible, go to our beliefs and see how this fits in. And that's what we're going to do today. And as you know, this afternoon, we're going to be meeting at 3 p.m. outside, and I'm not going to have PowerPoint slides. So I need you to pay attention now so that when I meet with you at 3 o'clock this afternoon, you'll have it all in your mind and we'll be able to finish up this, this topic. Well, um, one of my favorite quotes is from Education, page 123. And this is where she says that the Bible contains all the principles that men need to understand in order to be fitted either for this life or for the life to come. And these principles may be understood by all. No one with the spirit to appreciate its teaching can read a single passage from the Bible without gaining from it some helpful thought. 
But notice what she says here. She says, but the most valuable teaching of the Bible is not to be gained by occasional or disconnected study. Here she says it again, its great system of truth is not so presented as to be discerned by the hasty or careless reader. Many of its treasures lie far beneath the surface and can be obtained only by diligent research and continuous effort. The truths that go up to make the great whole must be searched out and gathered up here a little and there a little. When thus searched out and brought together, they will found to be perfectly fitted to one another. Each gospel is a supplement to the others, every prophecy an explanation of another, every truth a development of some other truth. The types of the Jewish economy are made plain by the gospel. Every principle in the word of God has its place, every fact its bearing, and the complete structure in design and execution bears testimony to its author. Such a structure, no mind but that of the infinite could conceive or fashion. And that's education page 123. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the sanctuary, which we know is a system of truth. We're going to apply it to today in what is going on around the world and what we know about Bible prophecy and Seventh-day Adventist eschatology. And what we're going to find is something truly amazing, as we'll see, and we'll be able to actually take what we find using this key, which is the sanctuary, and find out where we are in the stream of time and what is about to unfold on Earth's platform. So let's review really quickly the sanctuary. We have the altar of sacrifice. We have the laver. These are in the outer court. They're made out of inferior metals, like brass, bronze. Then we move into the tent of meeting, which is divided into the most holy and the holy. As we move into the holy place, we have the golden lampstand, and we have the table of showbread, and we also have the altar of incense. All of these have meaning. And then finally, we have the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the law, the Ten Commandments, on two tablets of stone. Well, what does this mean? This is in type meaningful in terms of the plan of salvation that Jesus Christ himself had to go through. For we see that the altar of sacrifice is where there is sacrifice, obviously, and that, as John the Baptist said in John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. So Jesus Christ is the Lamb, and when he died on the cross, he fulfilled the altar of sacrifice. But we also know that Paul said in Romans 6.4 that we are buried with him by baptism unto death. And so Christ's burial in the tomb is representative of the labor. When Christ ascended into the holy place in heaven, as John saw in Revelation with him walking among the seven candlesticks and seeing the altar of incense with the prayer of the saints ascending up to God the Father, he, we know that he sent back the Holy Spirit which is in Acts chapter 2, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, and 5, verse 6. And that happened on Pentecost. That was 50 days after the, uh, the Passover. Um, and that's exactly happened uh, as soon as Christ went to heaven. And then we had the Holy Scriptures, which were finished up there uh, just after 70 AD with John writing Revelation. And we knew that even in Revelation 8, 3, that we could now go boldly before the throne of God and ask for the forgiveness of sins. All of those three things are represented by those pieces of furniture in the holy place. But then we know that in 1844, on October 22nd, Christ went from the holy into the most holy, and the investigative judgment began. That is the antitypical day of atonement, which is written about in Leviticus chapter 16. And that, again, completes this. So we see that Jesus Christ walks through his sanctuary. It begins 
with the forgiveness of the Jewish people in allow, telling them to go back and to rebuild um, uh, Jerusalem. That was the third decree, Artaxerxes I, recorded in Ezra chapter 7 in 457 BC. And so we see here that in Christ's long sanctuary that he walks through, we see that the things that are fulfilled in the outer court are the things that are fulfilled on earth, and the things that are fulfilled in the tent of meeting, things that are made of gold, uh, fulfill those things that are in heaven. And so we can see the sanctuary maps out very clearly all of the things that Jesus must do for our salvation. Again, 457 BC being the start of that, we see that the 70 week prophecy in Daniel chapter nine takes us right to the middle of that 70th week, takes us right when Jesus Christ is crucified. That takes us up to the very first veil. That veil, a veil is being something that you can't see through until you get to it. You don't know what's on the other side until you pass through it. The veil is not a wall, so it doesn't prevent you from passing through. But when you pass through it, it's only then that you can see it. And we can see very clearly here that that first veil that separates what happens on earth from what happens in heaven occurred when Jesus Christ died on the cross in 31 AD. For you see at that time, the disciples knew that something was about to happen, but they had no clue what it was. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. that. That veil that separates Christ's ministry on earth with that of heaven is predicted by the 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And then the second veil, which separates his work in the holy place and the most holy place, is separated by yet another veil, another situation where you can't see what's on the other side of it until you get to that veil itself. And that is described by the 2300-day prophecy given by the same angel to the same Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. And that takes us to 1844. So we can see that there are many, many things that are associated with this, um, with this sanctuary. If we just go back real quickly, not only does Jesus go through his sanctuary where he provides the blood, where he is buried, where he ascends into heaven, pleads on behalf of his people against the law that cannot be changed, and then goes into the most holy place. But this very same sanctuary also describes the very track that we must go through as children of God. So we must also accept Jesus' death on the cross. Um, we must also be baptized as represented by the labor. Then we go into this room, this room, um, specifically the, the holy place where sanctification occurs. This is where uh, we, uh, all of the things that are wrong are taken away from us and all the things that are good are added to us. So that just like the high priest on the day of atonement, they may go through uh, that curtain and be in the presence of God without an intercessor on that antitypical day of atonement. So let's go through this. Uh, the children of Israel did the same thing. There was blood on the doorposts. They had crossed the Red Sea. They were a light to the world. There was manna. They, there was communication, a thick cloud. All of these things follow the pattern of that. And then finally, it's interesting in Exodus chapter 19, verse 12, just when we get to the, the, that veil that separates the holy from the most holy, it says there that there was a bound set around uh, Mount Sinai. And what was Mount Sinai? It was like a most holy place because you had to take your shoes off when you stood up there by the, by the burning bush. Moses was the only one that was able to go up the mountain. And what did he receive when he went up into the mountain of Mount Sinai? He received the Ten Commandments, the very objects that are in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. So we see that the children of Israel also went through this sanctuary. Look at Psalms 23. Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. The Lord 
provided everything that we need at the cross. He provided, he was the substitute of sacrifice. He, he, he basically took on this. And, uh, and, and as a result of this, we are saved by grace. Remember what Martin Luther underlined, the just shall live by faith alone. But when we accept Jesus Christ, we move through this sanctuary. And he says here, leadeth me besides the still water. So we become baptized. Not only do we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, but we become baptized. And then we move into this, this place called the holy place. And notice what David says about it. He says, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So are we being made righteous because that is what is required to be saved? No. Justification, which happens at the cross, is give us citizenship in heaven. But being righteous makes us fit for heaven. And Christ is not only doing that, he's doing it for his own name's sake, as David says here. So here's a room where, uh, as it says here, it says here, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Notice what's happening. God is the shepherd. He's using the rod and the staff to direct his sheep. And this is what he does to those who he loves. This is who he chastens. He chastens whom he loves. So here we're in a chamber, the holy place, where things that we, we're, you know, our heart is evil. So things that our heart loves are being taken away from us. And things that we don't necessarily like are being given to us. But we start to learn and we're becoming sanctified. And through this process of sanctification, we're able to then eventually stand in the presence of God. But David goes on. He says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. This goes along with the table of showbread. And thou anointest my head with oil. This goes along with the seven-branch candlestick. And then finally, David finishes it off. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you can see that David puts the entire plan of salvation that we must walk through. It's a very small sanctuary. It lasts our lifetime. Sometimes we don't even complete it. I mean, look at the thief on the cross. God, Jesus Christ, who was next to him, gave him absolute assurance that he was going to be with him in heaven one day. And how far did the thief on the cross get? He got as far as the altar of sacrifice. He accepted Jesus Christ's death on the cross as it was happening. But was he ever baptized? Was he ever able to go through sanctification? The answer is no. The circumstances did not allow for that. But if he were to somehow have lived and come off the cross we know that he probably would have done that because of, of the faith that he had. And so we can see clearly what are the requirements for saving. And we can see if we have the opportunity, we must go through the sanctuary. Well, let's just take a deep breath here and look at this. Um, how do we make an application to this at this point with coronavirus, with everything that's going on in politics? You know, there is a, a documentary that's recently come out. Uh, I've been told I haven't seen it, but it's called Social Dilemma. And it really just documents what's been going on in terms of the internet, in terms of uh, Facebook, <laughs> in terms of Instagram. And what we're finding out is that these, um, these companies are collecting data on everything that we look at. And uh, we, we can think about why that might be the case, but one of the more... Uh, known reasons why they do this is because they want to know what we're interested in and so they can show us more of that thing right how many times have you searched for let's say i don't know a blender and then all of a sudden the next day you're seeing commercials for blenders all over the place they know what it is that you want because of, of your behavior and so this this 
situation that you're in. And what we're in here is we have, you know, maybe our political beliefs or things that we look at. If we if we are if we're tending towards one side of the political spectrum, then that's what it gives us. If we're tending toward the other side of the political spectrum, that's what it gives us in that situation. So what we end up being in is a false holy place. It's an echo chamber, and it's the it acts completely the opposite of the sanctifying holy place that we're supposed to be in. Uh, why is that? Because in the true holy place that we're supposed to be in, God is taking away things that we are clinging to, that we like, and it's giving us things that we necessarily don't like, but we need to learn to love because that's the way we are, because we're innately evil. Well, in this echo chamber that's being created by the internet, we're being fed stuff that we like all the time and more and more, and we get stuck in this echo chamber where we, the things that we think are true are confirmed to us and we never get to see anything else. And I find that that is a very interesting situation that we're in because this is what Ellen White wrote in Selected Messages uh, regarding a lot of the stuff here politically that's going on. She says here, whatever the opinions you may entertain in regard to casting your vote in political questions, you are not to proclaim it by pen or voice. Our people need to be silent upon questions which have no relation to the third angel's message. If ever people need to draw nigh to God, it is Seventh-day Adventists. There have been wonderful devices and plans made. I, I have to stop there because even though Ellen White didn't know about Facebook or iPhones, she was shown things that would happen towards down to the end. And maybe this is the best way she could describe it. Again, she says, there have been wonderful devices and plans made. A burning desire has taken hold of men and women to proclaim something or to bind up with something. They do not know what, but silence, but the silence of Christ upon many subjects was true eloquence. So I, I put this out there because of where we are currently politically and where things are moving. I believe what Ellen White is telling us here is that there are devices to get us sucked in. What is the natural consequences of some of these things. Folks, I've seen it in my own community where people are excluded. People don't talk to each other because of these beliefs. What does that do? That handcuffs us in terms of the ability to reach people with the gospel, which is exactly what Satan wants. So be aware of that. Let us enter that holy place. So again, what I move back to is this God's plan of salvation. Jesus Christ was moving through his sanctuary. It's a very large sanctuary. It begins in 457 BC. The 70 weeks predicts his death on the cross. In AD 31, he ascends into heaven. He's in the holy place. And then in AD 1844, he's in the most holy place. And then we are moving through our sanctuary. We're very, very, very small sanctuaries in comparison. They last maybe our lifetime. Okay. So what does Romanesco broccoli have to do with this? Well, I want you to notice something. And this is where we get a little bit of interesting information from the second book, which is nature. Notice that Romanesco broccoli, when looked at under a close magnification, has big bumps. And those big bumps have smaller bumps on them. And those smaller bumps have even smaller bumps on them. In other words, there is a repeating pattern, but it's scalable. This is known as a fractal. Here's a snowflake. All right, God made the snowflake, and this is exactly how he made it. The same thing, large branches, smaller branches with smaller branches and smaller branches. Here's a leaf, same situation. Um, here's a number of things. Here's the lungs, same kind of fractal pattern. Here's a tree, almost identical. Here are, here are um, blood vessels, and then here is lightning. 
So in all of these things, if you notice, if you go to Job 38, when God is answering Job as to why he does the things that he does, Job, God says to Job, where were you when I blank? And he did all of these things. And a lot of the things, if not all of the things that he mentions, all have fractal behavior. So the clouds at the edge of a cloud is a fractal. The lightning is a fractal. When, when the water comes up on the shore and makes a sea line or, or a, a, a shoreline, that shoreline can be described as a fractal. And so what we see here is that God creates a pattern, but he can scale it to large size all the way down to the microscopic. Probably the best example is, is uh, the astronomy. Look at this galaxy. A galaxy is, is a bunch of stars that are swinging around in space. Each one of those is a star. Well, perhaps each one of those stars have planets which are rotating around it. And each of those planets may have moons rotating around it. And you get down to the atomic level, even the atom itself has electrons that are spinning around it. So if you take this, this uh, pattern, this, this thing that God likes to do with patterns and scale them, He's doing exactly the same thing with the sanctuary. So the sanctuary is a particular pattern and Jesus Christ moves through this sanctuary as we've already shown you in a very, very, very large, let's just say at the level of the sun, since he is the son of God, Ellen White often calls him the S-U-N. But down at, at us, the atomic level, we're the little atoms. We also have our little sanctuary that we go through. Even the electrons uh, spin around, right? Is there something in the middle is there something in the middle that we haven't scaled to as yet? And the answer I believe is yes, that's the church. We know that the church is referenced in Revelation chapter 12, when we have a woman standing on a moon. The moon is very interesting. It has no light of its own, just like the church, but it does reflect the light of the sun, which is given to it. And so I believe that the moon also, by the way, is the lesser light. Um, Elijah, the Elijah message was preached by John the Baptist, who called himself the lesser light. And so I, I think there's a lot of parallels there in the Bible itself for saying that the church is kind of at that moon level. And so the question is, is if the church is, is at that level there of the earth and the moon versus the sun and the atomic level, the question is, is there another sanctuary that is somewhere in between those two? Does the church need to go through its sanctuary? Does the church, is the church justified? Is the church sanctified? Is the church glorified? And I believe the answer to that is yes. And that's what I want to show you. And when we start to look at that and we start to look at the stories of the Bible, we'll start to see things that are very interesting. So yes, I believe that the church is has its own sanctuary that it must go through. And I believe that it is right at the end after 1844. So in other words, if we take a sanctuary, a outer court, a holy place, and a most holy place, and place it after 1844 until the end of time, until the second coming of Christ, what you will see is we divide things after 1844 into three parts. And those are the three parts that we have here in front. Now, this is a this is a closing events chart that was published back in 1970 by, um, uh, by Gordon Collier. He was an Adventist preacher. And what you'll notice here very, very quickly is that there are three periods of time between 1844, the investigative judgment, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And those three things are divided into by four um, events. The first one being the investigative judgment. The second one being the National Sunday Law, the third one being the close of probation, and the last one being the second coming of Christ. 
Now, what's interesting about this, those four events, is it divides the rest of time into three periods of time. Now, we know that this first period of time, which is where we're living, because obviously the National Sunday Law hasn't happened. Um, when the National Sunday Law happens, we, we know from biblical eschatology that we'll move into a period of a little time of trouble. It's when the latter rain will start to fall. It is where uh, people will start to come out of Babylon into, into the church. People will leave the church. People will start to be sealed either with the seal of God or with the mark of the beast. The Sunday law will start to increase in uh, severity. And then finally, when the last person on earth chooses for God or against God, then we will have the close of probation uh, for humanity. And that will follow with the great time of trouble, Jacob's time of trouble, and you will have the seven last plagues. And then finally, Jesus will come. And you'll notice that these three periods of time correspond to two things. Number one, it corresponds to the uh, uh, events that occur in the sanctuary. For instance, I'll give you an example. When the high priest goes into the most holy place on the day of atonement, he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat seven times. Well, there are seven last plagues during that very same point. Um, in that last period, after the close of probation, man will be standing be, will be standing in front of God without an intercessor, as the high priest does on the Day of Atonement. Uh, and so you see that there is a correlation there. Uh, we see that um, the church will have those come out of her and those who are outside come into her. And as the church is being made up, she will become sanctified. She will become basically made up. And that's exactly what happens in the holy place as we become sanctified. So let's look at that a little bit more. The other thing that it correlates to are the Passover. And you'll see that here with these dates, Nisan 13, 14, and 15. So these are the dates of the Passover. You'll notice that the dates of the Passover fit perfectly with the sanctuary. What happens, remember, on the 14th day of Nisan is that all of the leaven has to be out of the house. Leaven represents sin. And that's exactly what we start to see here in the church uh, after the National Sunday Law is passed, is people who are in the church that are not going to be part of the church leave, and people who accept the three angels' message are coming into the church out of Babylon come in. By the way, on the very same day that Egyptians uh, on that first Passover were coming into the church. Uh, we see here on the 15th, the 15th begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a seven-day period of time, seven periods without any leaven, without any sin. And we see here that God's people, after the close of probation, will need to go through seven um, uh, plagues, and they will be uh, sinless because they'll be standing in the presence of God without an intercessor. You'll see these patterns over and over again. When you start to stack these things one on top of the other, you'll see that all of this comes together, just like it said in Ellen White, where she says that there will be a great system of truth. Let me explain a little bit more. How many times have you seen in the Bible where there's a door that closes followed by a period of seven? We see that Noah, the, the ark closed and it was followed by a period of seven days. We see that Joshua, uh, Jericho was closed up and he marched around it for seven days. We see that Daniel's three friends were put into the fiery furnace. The door was closed and, um, and there was, uh, it was seven times hotter. And every one of those stories, we see at the end of the story that uh, the enemies of God are destroyed and the friends of God, those that believe in God, have faith in him, are preserved by a miracle. So let, let's go through this. I want to take the rest of the time, and we've got about 20 minutes, to go through these stories. And I want to show you how the narratives in the Bible can actually be used to tell you what is about to happen. Okay? So once again, 
our four periods or our four events are the commencement of the investigative judgment here at the very beginning. The second event is the National Sunday Law. The third event is the general close of probation on humanity. And then finally, the second coming of Christ at the very end. Now notice that this is very important to, to understand is that this period of time, this central period of time between the National Sunday Law and the close of probation, this is where individuals are coming up in the judgment and are being judged and are being sealed for God. And so we know from the Bible that, that it says that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And so it's very important to understand this, that for Seventh-day Adventists who understand the message, they're not going to be judged towards the end here at the general close of probation. It's possible that their, their trial may come up very, very early because it says that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. So part of what I'm trying to tell you here is that it's not very far off. We are very close to the end of Nisan 13. That's the other thing I was going to bring up as well, is that I called these periods of time between the investigative judgment and the National Sunday Law as Nisan 13, between the National Sunday Law and the closure probation as Nisan 14, and between the closure probation and the second coming of Christ, Nisan 15. So I've, I've run through quite a bit of information here, but now we're going to take a deep breath and we're going to go through the story, okay? Because I believe these stories were put there less for the people at that time and more for us today. So what I'm trying to tell you is that the things that happen on Nissan 13 are a snapshot about what we're going through right now. And that the things that happen in these Passover stories on Nissan 14 are a snapshot of what is about to happen between the National Sunday Law and the close of probation. And that the stories about the things that happen on these Passover stories on Nissan 15 are a snapshot of what is going to happen between the close of probation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look and see if this follows or, or fulfills that. So if you'll notice in every single Passover story, there's something that needs to happen before anybody can take place in the Passover. It's a requirement. It's mandatory. It's obligatory. And that is circumcision. And you can look that up in Exodus chapter 12, verse 43 to 48. It's very clear. Any stranger that is within your gates that's going to be there for the Passover needs to be circumcised. It's, it's very, very important. So what's the, what does that mean? What does circumcision mean? Well, it's, it's a sign of the covenant. But more specifically, if we look in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, this is what it says. It's talking about, Paul is talking about Abraham and how righteousness was counted unto him because of his faith, even before he was circumcised. So here's Paul in Romans 4, 11. It says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith with which he had yet been uncircumcised. In other words, circumcision is a sign of righteousness by faith. So think about that. Think about that very carefully because you know very well that in between 1844 and currently was 1888. And that is when the entire idea of righteousness by faith was presented in 1888 and it was rejected. And even to this day, there are some who still say that we didn't reject the message of righteousness by faith. So I believe, and we'll talk more about this this afternoon, that before the church can go from Nissan 13 to Nissan 14, before there can be a national Sunday law, we as a church need to get our act together and understand the basis of righteousness by faith. Do you remember that when the children of Israel got 
to the River Jordan and were about to pass over immediately through the first time, they did not have faith that they could take the land. Joshua and Caleb were rebuffed. And as a result of that, they had to stay in the wilderness for another 40 years. Ellen White describes that that is what happened when the two people that talked about um, uh, righteousness by faith, Jones and Wagner, went to the general conference and they were rebuked and they were rejected. And she said after that, that we were going to be around for a long time, that we had missed our opportunity. In fact, she even said that the latter rain was starting to fall, but because of the rejection, uh, it did not happen. Interestingly, that very same year, that very same man, Jones, went to Congress to testify against a national Sunday law. And I believe that that national Sunday law did not pass in May of that year because God knew that we were going to reject righteousness by faith. Until we get righteousness by faith down, and we'll talk more about this this afternoon, I believe that we are not going to move into uh, the 14th or past the national Sunday law. But hey, the people in Egypt, the, the, the Israelites, they were all circumcised. And so we were able to do this before the 14th. Now what happened? On the 14th, this is between the National Sunday Law and the close of probation. All leaven was to be removed. The word there is actually sealed. Uh, the lamb's blood was applied to the vertical and horizontal wood posts. This is the same period of time, by the way, that Jesus was hung on the cross. Uh, hyssop was used. That, that stands, if you look at Psalms 51, verse 7, hyssop is used for purification, for sanctification. And on this very day, on the 14th day of Passover in Egypt, we read in Signs of the Times, March 25, 1880, Ellen White says that on the very day that we expect people in Babylon to come into our church, Ellen White writes that Egyptians were welcomed into the Hebrew houses for salvation. And so we can see a type and an anti-type occurring here when we read these, these uh, passages. Now, we know in looking at what we know is going to happen in uh, prophecy, that the door is going to close, that there's going to be a close of probation. That is the very next thing that's going to happen in the story. And sure enough, when we look into the actual story of the Exodus, we come to Exodus 12, verse 22, which says, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Essentially, go into your home and close the door. And that's what we see exactly when we come to the close of probation. And so what do we see that happens? In this story, Nisan 15 is such an amazing story because this is what happens. It's at midnight when the moon is the highest in the, in the sky that the death angel comes and delivers the judgments on the uh, wicked people in, in Egypt. And not only that, it's on Nisan 15, which has special meaning because Nisan 15, because it's in the middle of the month of the Jewish month and because the Jewish month is a lunar month and always begins with a new moon, Nisan 15 by definition always has a full moon. So at the very moment, when the death angel hits Egypt, it hits right at the very moment in time, astro astronomically, where the moon is the highest, it's the brightest, and it's fully reflecting the light of the sun. And that happens when we have the church. The church is fully reflecting the light of the sun at that moment on Nisan 15. Why is that? Because just as the children of Israel were still in Egypt, but no longer under the power of Pharaoh, so will the 144,000 be on earth but no longer under the power of sin. As they leave Egypt, Pharaoh chases them. Pharaoh, someone who requires worship, who is a civil leader, but also a religious leader, he is going to push the children of Israel into the sea by his, using his army and try to get them to be killed 
into the sea. But what happens? The sea opens up by a miracle and the sea doesn't even touch them. In fact, the children march through the Red Sea on dry ground by a miracle and they escape out the other side. And then Pharaoh's army goes and chases them, but then the sea covers them up and, and destroys them. Folks, we know from Bible prophecy that the sea represents peoples. And we know at the end of time that religious leaders and civil leaders will try to use the masses of people to attack God's people. But we know that through the miracle of Christ that they will not be allowed to touch us. This is when we claim the promises of Psalms 91. A thousand shall fall at thy side and 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shall thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Remember, it also says in that chapter that no plague will come nigh thy dwelling. He will give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. And what happens is that the children of Israel march through just like we will march through unscathed, the people not touching us. But we also know from biblical eschatology that the people will finally understand that they have been deceived and they will turn on their leaders. And that is exactly what we see in this chapter of, of Exodus when Pharaoh's army marches through the sea and the sea closes up on them and destroys them. And so we see, if we look at the details of the story, that the details of the story tell us exactly what is about to happen. This is the story of the Passover in Egypt, but it's not the only story. Notice what Ellen White talks about. She actually uses the very same language, talking about Nisan 15, after the close of probation, the 144,000. She says, many do not realize what they must be in order to live in the sight of a high priest without a high priest in the sanctuary through the time of trouble. Those who receive the seal of the living God and are protected in the time of trouble must reflect the image of Jesus fully. Well, we, we can go on here. Um, let's talk about the Passover that happened uh, 40 years later. Because remember, they were turned away. They were in the wilderness. Now Joshua is leading the children of Israel. We come to the very same Passover. They're about to cross the Jordan River, go into Jericho. And what happens? Well, we see it in Joshua 5, 2 to 9. Once again, it is absolutely essential before we could go through with the Passover that every man must be circumcised. And since we have a new generation, once again, they meet at Gilgal and every man is circumcised. What is circumcision again? It is the seal of righteousness by faith. I don't believe yet as a church, we have received that seal of righteousness by faith. I believe that we are going to be there, and I believe that there's going to be a reawakening of that. Um, we'll talk more about that this afternoon. Then what happened? It says very simply in Joshua 5.10 that they kept the Passover on the 14th, and guess what they ate? Unleavened bread. Unleavened, no sin, no leaven. And this is exactly what is going to happen between the National Sunday Law and the close of probation. And then what we see, we see that a, just when we're ready for a door to close in the story, because we're expecting it, we know it's going to happen. We come to Joshua 6, chapter one, or chapter six, verse one, Jericho was straightly shut up. None went out, none came in. It's exactly what we expect to see based on our pattern. And that's exactly what we do see. And check this out. Listen to what happens. Listen to what happens here. Joshua is about to gather his troops and he is about to make war on Jericho. But before he does it, he sees an angel or a man with a very large sword. And he goes up and says, who are you? Are you for us or are you against us? And Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of hosts, says to him, Joshua, take off your sandals for the place that you are standing is holy ground. So check out what happens next. Joshua, who's standing in ho on holy ground, 
comes out of that holy place, that most holy place. And he has, he gathers his troops to lead an attack on a rebellious city, Jericho, in which there is a small remnant of people who are loyal to Christ, okay, who are loyal to them, because it is led by a woman who hid two witnesses in her house. Now think about that, because that's exactly what is going to happen at the end of time. For Jesus Christ himself, whose name Joshua is, Joshua means Jesus, it's the same word, Jesus himself will step out of that most holy place. He will gather his angels. They will go to make war against a rebellious city earth in which there is a small remnant who are faithful to Jesus Christ. Who and why? It's because they have been head by a woman, the church, who hid two witnesses in her house. And amazing, how many days after Joshua or Jericho is shut up, does, Jer does Joshua march around it? seven days. And on the seventh day, seven times. And just as there are seven trumpets in Revelation, there are seven priests blowing seven trumpets in Joshua. And if there's any doubt in your mind, the, the where we are here is on Nisan 15, which is the most holy place of this sanctuary, if you will. And what is the piece of furniture that's being led out in front of everyone when Joshua marches around Jericho? But it is the Ark of the Covenant. So amazing. Once again, we see another snapshot of what is about to happen. But perhaps, and, and by the way, um, Rahab is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. That's a whole nother story there. Because basically what we're saying there is that here's a sinful woman or a woman that used to be sinful, but she gives rise to a chaste virgin that, remember, remember Paul says, I want to present to you a chaste virgin to the church. And, and it's amazing because that chaste virgin will eventually, just as Mary was a chaste virgin and gave rise to a man-child who kept the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ, so too will this church, this church who used to be a sinful woman, will be a chaste virgin, and she too will give rise to a man-child, the 144,000 who keep the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. They both come from that same woman in Revelation chapter 12, by the way, at the very end and at the very beginning. But perhaps uh, I have only five minutes to talk to you about, uh, we'll skip Sodom and Gomorrah. That's another story. It fits perfectly. I mean, you've got the three angels visiting Abraham. You have Lot making unleavened bread even before the Passover, which is mind blowing. We have the angels closing the door at the right time at the close of probation. And we have Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed by fire and brimstone. This is the same material that is gonna be used in Revelation to destroy the earth. So once again, another Passover, sort of in Sodom and Gomorrah. But probably the most interesting story is the Passover or the Passion Week. Because here at the very beginning, what do we see? We see on the 13th, which would be Wednesday night to Thursday night, we see that, and this is what we're gonna talk about this afternoon, that Thursday night, which ends at sunset. Remember these days end at sunset. So the National Sunday Law would correspond to Thursday, six o'clock PM when the sun is going down. And the question of, did the disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper experience righteousness by faith? And I would tell you the answer is absolutely yes. And we'll talk more about that. But let's look what happened after the Last Supper. After the Last Supper, we have the National Sunday Law, if you will, 
where religious leaders use civil authority to persecute God's people. And that's exactly what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see religious leaders getting the Roman guards to arrest Jesus and to disperse the disciples. We see further on that Jesus is led to different uh, prelates, Pilate, Herod, etc., to, to witness the word to kings. This is exactly what's going to happen during this time. Seventh-day Adventist Christians are going to be witnessing their belief to, um, to political leaders. Um, here we know that this is where Satan himself is going to impersonate Christ to lead many away, and many religious leaders will be clamoring for this antichrist power and, and Satan impersonating. It's during this very portion of the day that we see Barabbas, whose name literally means son of the father, Bar-Abbas. And we see that religious leaders are clamoring for him to become the one that we choose. And most of them choose Barabbas instead of Jesus Christ, who, is, who is actually can, can find no fault. Finally, as Jesus is dying on the cross, we are dying to self. As Jesus is being offered the vinegar from the Roman soldier, we are being offered the wine of Babylon. We both refuse to drink. And then finally, in such a, a mind-blowing parallelism, as Jesus says, it is finished, we see the inner, court, inner court curtain being ripped from top to bottom, and we see the spirit of, of Christ the spirit of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem, the most holy place. And as it leaves, that structure will never be used again for the remission of sin. At the very same time, in parallel, in eschatology, we see Jesus throwing down the censer, saying it is finished, coming out of the most holy place and leaving. And we know that that structure will never again be used for the remission of sin. We see that the Roman guard takes Jesus's body, the body of Christ, and puts it into the tomb and seals the tomb. Well, we know at the very same time on earth that we will have the body of Christ, the church being sealed so that nobody can touch the body of Christ. On that day, Nisan 15, for the first time in the universe's history, nobody stood between man and God. Jesus Christ was dead. And we will see in parallel during this period of time on Nisan 15, there will again be nobody standing between man and God. Folks, how is it possible that these stories fit perfectly with what we know from biblical eschatology? We know that this is not an accident. Ellen White has told us this. She says, Christ's betrayal and crucifixion will be reenacted. She says that the scenes of the betrayal, rejection, and crucifixion of Christ have been reenacted and will again be reenacted on an immense scale. People will be filled with the attributes of Satan, those delusions of the arch enemy of God, and man will have great power. Folks, what I want to talk to you about this afternoon is this. We, I believe, are at this period here between the commencement of the investigative judgment and the Sunday law. And what we're going to talk about is we're going to unpack what happened in that upper room. Remember, 12 disciples went into that upper room fighting with each other. 11 of them came out in one accord, feeling ashamed. And yet to the point where Christ himself was able to say, ye are clean. That is, I believe, where we as a church need to be before any National Sunday Law occurs. Because after the National Sunday Law comes the latter rain, which comes the ceiling. And so this afternoon at three o'clock, meet with us, come and listen to us, 
and we will show we will we will show what happened in that upper room reading the desire of ages and um and reading selected messages out of there to show you and to expand if this is true if in fact what happened during that passion week is a play of what is about to happen and i believe it is then it behooves us to study the events of what is happening right now and with that let me um just bow my head and join me as we um, as we ask for God's blessing and as we end this uh, hour of study. Dear Lord, thank you so much for showing us how your sanctuary is the key that opens the great system of truth and that how that truth can be used even today to understand present truth and where we need to be. Help us to understand really what is it means to have righteousness by faith and what it is that we need to do today, right now, even amongst this pandemic. What is it that we can do as Seventh-day Adventist Christians to understand where we are, what we need to do and how we need to move forward so that we can act our role in this great cosmic conflict. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.